Hey guys, it's Katie and Mandy. Welcome to the Dirty Britches Minisode. Hello, how's it going, everyone? We're back Hi. for a mini-sode. Yes, welcome Hi. to yeah. our mini-sodes, where it is a collection of random thoughts, always. <laughs> uh, this episode, we had been planning on doing our very first local laundry, which is our, like, shout-out to places where we have lots of listeners, and Atlanta is one of the places where <laughs> we don't know anyone in Atlanta, but people are listening, and we're so grateful. So we wanted to show that gratitude by diving into the shittiness of white women in Atlanta. So mm. we did not know that the week we wanted to do this would also be in the aftermath of a really horrific, tragic episode in a very long history of xenophobic, racist violence against Asian American Pacific Islanders and Asian people in the United States. So the shooting yeah. that happened in Atlanta um is very much on our hearts and minds. And so it just seemed all the more appropriate that we focus on Atlanta today. Yes. And we do want to make sure that we are including um, all different lines of oppression when mm -hmm. we discuss the history of white women, because it's definitely um, much broader than sometimes gets talked about. And I think that's particularly true with our Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Um, and partly because of this thing, um, the whole model minority myth um, mm -hmm. that gets attached to Asian people and people of Asian descent, um, because there's just this incorrect viewpoint that they do quote unquote well mm -hmm. as um, a minority in this country. And so I don't think that we pay much attention to how um, the long, long history of how America has been really shitty um, towards Asians, Asian Americans. Um, so there was one thing that Katie clued me into earlier this week and then that I've posted online. Um, I need to put it on our blog and we will do that for this episode. But I really highly suggest that everybody go to YouTube and search for the Amber Ruffin show and look for her um, piece called Violence Against Asian Americans Isn't New, But It Is Growing, mm -hmm. because she gives a very good, quick breakdown of mm -hmm. a lot of the long history of America and its anti-Asian uh, problems that yeah. we have had and that we should address. Um, and it's, I think she does a great job of it. So I would just direct people number one to go there mm -hmm. and maybe to share that or put something out there, have a conversation with some people in your lives about this incident, because I just don't, for me, at least people just aren't talking about it as much as some of the other mm -hmm. incidents of the past year have been talked about. And I think part of that is, again, just the racism that's sure. specifically targeted towards people of Asian descent. And it's something that we need to address for sure. Mm -hmm. um, there was also, I wanted to bring up just this interaction that I had on social media um, on another friend's post. I'm sure she just loved me jumping in there and getting <laughs> mouthy with people. <laughs> but particularly, like, this is a problem. Um, 
that specifically involved the comment of a white woman. So I feel like it's uh, mm. something relevant to bring up here. Um, this friend of mine had posted just her sympathy and about problems with racism in America. And a white woman felt the need to jump on there and comment that, um, oh, this was not about race. This was about his sex addiction. And he mm. went and murdered these people because it was because they were sex workers, which is so problematic on so many levels. (laughs) Where to start? I mean, where to start? Uh, A, Mm. like, does it matter what their Mm. occupation was? Is there a line of work that then makes it okay for someone to murder you? Mm -hmm. Like zero, none whatsoever, whether they were sex workers willingly, not willingly, or at all. Mm -hmm. That whole line of conversation is one meant to dehumanize people and Mm -hmm. it's victim blaming. And there's no reason for that to be brought up other than also the realization that the fetishization and Mm -hmm. sexualization of Asian women is part of the racist history of our country. So just realizing that these things are not separate. They Mm -hmm. are multifactorial. They Mm -hmm. are all related. Even if you want to take a murderer at his word that it wasn't (laughs) race-related, which is ridiculous anyway, it's still race-related. So Mm -hmm. just think deeper before you let garbage come out of your mouth is... (laughs) Basically, Zip those lips. <laughs> what yeah. people need to do. We will definitely link to Amber Ruffin's video. I feel like I have a borderline, like, unhealthy love for Amber Ruffin. I just think <laughs> she's incredible. And I I was doing a little bit, this sounds creepy, like a little bit of research on Amber Ruffin. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to know more about her life and how she came to, you know, where she's at today. And I didn't realize we're of the same age. And I was like, good, my shit together. Like, good for you. <laughs> I was just so excited. Like, yes, get it. You know, yeah. that she's just incredible. So definitely check that out. And then we will also include on our blog um, some resources, like a reading list. Um, I think, you know, those are not perfect solutions to have like a syllabus or a reading list, but I do think it's helpful to give people some some books or articles that are, are really great overviews of anti-Asian racism in the United States, because it is, it does have dis, a, you know, distinctive history. It's still going on. And erasure through a whole variety of ways is a really significant problem. And Amber Ruffin points this out in her clip, but, you know, K-12, we do a very piss poor job, generally speaking, of teaching history at all, let alone AAPI histories. And so just please, please, this, if this is not something you know a lot about, this is a great opportunity. That's probably a bad way to frame it, but like, please take advantage of this moment to dive deeper, to learn more, to, you know, follow people on social media, et cetera, just to keep educating yourself about this. But we we will post all those links and yeah. more on our blog. And I feel like I didn't do a great job of covering some of these issues as they pertain to voting rights in the early, um, mm-hmm. like post 19th Amendment, because there still were a lot of things that spe- are specific to Asian Americans. So we still have, we're going to be discussing it more, but I do intend to bring that up specifically in the next couple of episodes. So that's we'll great. I appreciate that because I, I know we have really been framing this season as like black and white with 
I think, some attention to Indigenous women, but mm-hmm. I, I really do want to make sure that we don't present that as some kind of binary or mm-hmm. that we continue to erase, erase Asian American Pacific Islander or Asian women from these stories, too. And I yeah. think that's actually a really good segue to the local laundry that I wanted to share today, because your point about the way that people are talking about the recent murders and like trying to skirt the issue or talk around it or point to other things or just shove it under the rug, Mm -hmm. that that's actually what happened with this episode. And in the terms, in terms of the way that white people are treating these kinds of events, like really horrible racist violence, there's a very, very clear pattern of how white people handle those events. Um, Namely, pretending like that's not what it is, gaslighting, or just deleting it from our collective white people memory banks, and we cannot do that anymore. So um, there's uh, some articles I'm going to link to, and then two books, one in particular that was really helpful. Um, One book is Negrophobia, A Race Riot in Atlanta 1906 by Mark Bowerlein. I used it a little bit for some primary sources. And then Rebecca Burns' book, Rage in the Gate City, the story of the 1906 Atlanta race riot. And she talks about in the book that um, when she started working on the book, that the Atlanta History Center didn't even include it in their timeline of key events. And she says, over the years, I've spoken with many Native Atlantans and longtime residents who had never heard of it. And then Sweet Auburn, which is a historical site documenting the history of Auburn Avenue, which is one of the areas where this happened, says, if white families in the city retained any memories of the riot, and few seem to, it typically centered on how some paternalistic whites had saved black servants from the mob, or how the riot had prompted a new cooperation between the races. And one of the white leaders at the time talked about is the complex Negro problem, which is just, just so infuriating how common that is to say like, oh, racism, it's a people of color problem when it's like full stop fully a white people problem mm-hmm. um but this i think this trend too of like when we do look back on painful horrific acts of violence that it's so easy for white people to want to look for like the handful of white people that weren't shitty and only remember them and mm-hmm. not try to do a deeper dive into things mm-hmm. so let me take you back atlantans listening hello we love you thank Hi. you um and then for those of you not familiar with Atlanta, that in the early 1900s, it had this reputation for being like a beacon in the South, like a more progressive Southern city. Business was booming. Uh, there was a really thriving black middle class. There were six black colleges, just kind of like the shining example of what a city in the South could be. Mm-hmm. And people even were talking about how like even a couple years before this happened, like, oh, things are great. I don't know that everyone thought that, but that was kind of, you know, the mainstream attitude. So in September of 1906 is what's known now as the Atlanta race riot. I don't really like that term because I wish it was called like white Atlantans fuck up big time, (laughs) but that's how historians are talking about it right now, Mm -hmm. at least the ones that I was reading. So it was really the culmination of a number of factors. And there was a lot like leftover issues from reconstruction and you were talking a lot, uh, Mandy, about like all these efforts, Jim Crow efforts to deny black voting rights. This is right mm-hmm. before the 19th Amendment gets passed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that a growing black middle class actually made many white citizens uncomfortable, but they were also wary of rising crime rates and the perceived threat of black men against white women. 
-hmm. And that was from Sarah Bartlett writing for Mm blackpass.org. So there's also a big governor's race in 1906 that fall between two rich white dudes, Hoke Smith and Clark Howell. And in the primary, Smith prevails. Um, He was a newspaper owner and the former secretary of the interior for President Cleveland. Howell had been a Confederate officer and a mayor of Atlanta, but Smith ends up winning and ends up implementing the grandfather clause like they're they're both white supremacist assholes it's like take your pick um so that that had just happened and everyone knows like what's coming with with them and then a month after the primary which is basically the election the newspapers including the newly elected governor his former newspaper are like blasting out all these headlines about black men assaulting white women. Here are some of the headlines. I'm going to do my best, like, old-timey newspaper voice. (laughs) Extra, extra, third assault on white women by a Negro brute. Is that disrespectful to try to do that? It feels gross. I'm not going to do it. Uh, And it's a terrible, like, radio voice. Okay, extra. Bold Negro kisses white girl's hand. Bright mulatto insults white girls. Like, these are headlines in the fucking newspaper. Then um, there was even an article, How to Stop Crime Against White Women. I mean, just, like, definitely not any subtext, just all text. And um, in one week, or in one day, four assaults are reported. In one week, it's like a dozen. It's all of these, like, ridiculous. In these two books I mentioned, they detail these reports that these white women make. And they are just the most ridiculous dramatic scenes that you could possibly imagine the named i want to name some of these white ladies these are um, the ones that get mentioned the most a miss ori brian who's a pretty 18 year old daughter of this rich dude um mabel and ethel lawrence mabel's 14 and ethel's her aunt in her 20s visiting from england and they're just clearly presented in the newspapers as, you know, like paragons of virtue and purity. Um, One in the attack against Ori Bryan or the alleged attack, um, the newspaper says, men of Fulton, what will you do to stop these outrages against the women? Shall these black devils be permitted to assault and almost kill our women and go unpunished? And so it's clearly just like riling people up. And the newspaper is publishing, you know, who has reported assaults, um, what's happened, who who they've identified as the assailant and what has happened to them. So some of these men were, uh, one actually says in Fulton County, Miss Annie Poole of Lakewood on July 31st, Floyd Carmichael identified and lynched, just reported, like super matter of fact. Um, it obviously did not matter if there was a trial. A lot of the men who were identified originally are like hunted down and beaten and then like oops mabel thinks maybe it was somebody else like that's what we're talking mm-hmm. about here mm-hmm. um from rebecca burns's book she says the poisonous mix of white resentment sensational and mostly fabricated newspaper accounts of sex crimes and a race-baiting political battle came to a head on saturday september 22nd when atlanta newspapers released extra editions reporting four assaults by black men on white women had taken place in a single day by 10 o'clock that night downtown atlanta resembled a lower level of hell thousands of whites swarmed the streets and attacked blacks on sight in a telling display of hatred Rioters stacked corpses of three victims Mm. on the base of the Henry W. Grady statue on Marietta Street, demonstrating with grisly candor their response to Grady's vision of a progressive and tolerant New South. Over the next three days, Atlanta was the scene of intermittent and senseless violence. State militia troops summoned by the governor to quell the riot were preoccupied with protecting whites from feared retaliatory attacks rather than safeguarding the African-Americans who were hunted down in their homes, schools, churches, and businesses. She goes on to talk about how 
in the aftermath of what happened, the rich white people are like, oh, it's just those poor, classless, white trash people who do extra legal violence. Like, we're not, you know, we have nothing to do with this. It's like the classless white people. Does that remind you of most Republicans' response to the storming of the Capitol? Oh, my God. I mean, it's just like verbatim. You could basically Mm -hmm. pick up the dates and just exchange them. That Mm -hmm. And clearly what, what... Rebecca Burns and other historians note is like, obviously, these elite white people or wealthy white people had their fingerprints all over all of this. Like, even at the time, black authors, black journalists were saying, "Uh, no, like, it's the Mm -hmm. corrupt racist politicians and newspaper people drumming up all of this. So they might not be the person on the street with a torch, but they are absolutely lighting the match. So um, I mean, the violence is really horrific. And I don't honestly know how much detail to get into it. People were chased and beaten to death um, in really horrible, awful ways with an assortment of weapons. Um, One man was reported to have been chopped up. Um, I mean, just really, really horrible. The police um, are called in. The mayor, like, kind of pleads with them, like, oh, don't make Atlanta look bad, kind of attitude and then the police like sort of half-assed like try to keep the mob from doing more but it doesn't work and then they often were aiding rioters who were like hunt literally hunting black people dragging them from streetcars um destroying businesses like this you know middle class very prosperous business district and over a thousand black people fled the city um the black colleges provided refuge to many black people. Um, some of the white families that employed black people as servants protected them. Um, at one hotel and a restaurant hid their employees. It was just, I mean, it just sounds like fucking nightmare. Um, there's some really famous people who were involved in this. W.B. Du Bois was a professor mm-hmm. at Atlanta university and he goes to campus, protects his family inside, like with a shotgun in front of this building. The future head of the NAACP, Walter White, he was 13. His dad gives him a gun and is like, don't fuck around. Mm-hmm. Um, his quote was, I knew then who I was. John Wesley Dobbs was a U.S. Railway postal clerk, um, and he would become a voting rights activist, and his grandson would become Atlanta's first black mayor in 1973. So like a lot of people who went on to be really involved in activism or already were Booker T. Washington was also involved, but this is a story for another day. He's the one who's like very much an accommodationist and like black people. If we just are more like white people, everything will be fine. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, Oh, you know, these violent people are to blame white and black and no one should be assaulting women. And that's bad and just not helping things. Um, So then it's hard to tell exactly how many people died at least 24 for sure. And then maybe up to a hundred black people were murdered. Um, Two white people were killed. One is a police officer and one was a white lady who had a heart attack witnessing the violence. Gosh. So (laughs) yeah. Then um, hundreds more were injured. So many businesses were destroyed and, and obviously never even came back, you know, that they Mm -hmm. were hit too hard or they were worried and left. Um, Okay. So this happens. It's like three nights of terror The papers, uh, the militia gets called in. Again, like the police are protecting white people from potential retaliation, which of course never happens. Um, The papers later admit that the reports of black assaults on women were exaggerated. So like, are bad. Um, Almost all of these reports were false that were made. So that's happening. Um, 
Adrian McNeil Herndon wrote a letter to Booker T. Washington and said, this is just so heartbreaking. She's a black woman. Sometimes I doubt if there's any spot in this country where one with Negro blood can plant a home free from prejudice and scorn and molestation. Um, and, and this was really a turning point that Booker T's Booker T. Washington's like accommodationist views just aren't as appealing to people who might have supported them before, at least to, for black people. And that this really leads to people embracing like a more radical or more um, like deliberate, more urgent sort of activism. Rachel Burns says in the weeks following the riot, white civic leaders met with black business owners and pastors to form a biracial coalition to prevent future violence. This was one of the seeds that contributed to Atlanta's eventual too busy to hate mantra, which is still its motto today. The coalition members also, however, reinforced segregation in the city across lines of both race and class. And she wrote this great article um, that we'll link to as well uh, in the wake of January 6th, where she was saying this, it, we have a lot to learn from this race riot that happened in 1906 from what mm-hmm. just happened at the Capitol. So mm-hmm. I want to leave with this um, quote. Over the coming days and weeks after January 6th, we will continue to see politicians who enabled Trump, even to the extent of trying to overthrow a fair election in Congress, try to distance themselves from what happened. We will witness efforts to create false equivalencies between racial justice protests and the violent display of the Confederate flag in the Capitol. We will will hear calls to move on. But that implies like the glossing over of the events in Atlanta, Wilmington, Tulsa, There were so many places in these years that these race riots were happening. A suppression of the outrage and horror we have witnessed. History, as the saying goes, and the facts reveal, repeats itself. She goes on to say, Often I'm asked if as a white writer, I even have the right to document the events in 1906, which, like so much of American history, consisted of white people doing horrible things in the interest of maintaining their dominance. The Atlanta race riot is a chapter in the shared history of the city as a whole, and white people are the ones who need to learn from it and learn from what's happening today. We need to own our history, all of it, which I just so appreciated and think this is, you know, as much as we try really hard to lift up the scholarship and work of um, authors of color, especially women of color, I I really appreciated her pointing to the fact that that Black families didn't forget this happened. Mm -hmm. You know, Black Atlantans know this history. It's white people who just like start whistling and pretend like it didn't happen or like with the shooting, they say, Oh, I bet it's just because of a sex addiction or, you know what? It's, it's about something else. That's not what it is. And then suddenly we've blasted enough smoke screen that it's impossible to make sense of anything. And that just cannot, we, we as white people cannot keep doing that. Yeah. There's so much to draw parallels of that to today. I mean, one of the things I think of mm-hmm. immediately is like, I'm happy to see that a lot of the people who were invi- involved in the right at the Capitol are getting arrested and we'll see mm-hmm. what happens to the charges against them. But I am right. endlessly pissed off at the fact that the leaders who again, stoked this violence to happen Mm -hmm. are not being held responsible. Mm -hmm. The people in Congress who kept telling all of the lies that got all of these people worked up are just still there acting like nothing happened, like everything's fine. They're not the ones that are sitting in jail. There's no accountability. And this is the problem is that they just use people as pawns to play these things out. And the people that suffer just end up getting more angry and blaming Mm -hmm. things inappropriately on the wrong people. The people that are to blame are the people back in Atlanta who published those stories, who told the lies to begin with, and then pushed them on the people to blame in the 
capital are the politicians who advanced the lies and didn't come out and refute things that we know are not true. And we have to stop allowing that to happen. I don't know how to right. do that. But it's we- like this constant plausible deniability, like, oh, I didn't do anything or like I didn't it's it's generally with racism, like, well, I didn't use the N word as if that's the only way that you promote racism, you know, right. or that you unleash it on the world. Um, I might have called Rebecca Burns Rachel at one point, so forgive me if I did, but she says elsewhere that actually to circle back to Georgia, that day of the Capitol rights, January 6th, was the more that morning Ossoff and Warnock got announced as the winners, mm-hmm, like of the mm-hmm. runoff. But she points back to the fact that the reason that runoff law even exists has its roots in the suppression of black voters. Mm. That that was a mechanism to promote white supremacy. So it's like everywhere, yeah. everywhere. Yeah. But I, I think more and more that we're doing this podcast, something I just keep thinking about are the politics of memory and mm-hmm. what we remember who gets to craft those narratives, what we forget, why we forget it. Like all of those questions are really swirling around for me right now. And so just thinking about this, I hope that the Atlanta History Center now has this feature, like, you know, does something with this history. Um, It just seems so convenient that these episodes wouldn't be remembered at all. Or Mm -hmm. if they are remembered, it's like, remember how grandpa saved those poor black people from that mob? Like that just, we cannot, we just can't. So uh, to your question, I don't really know how we hold those people accountable either, but I, this is why I think the power of history is just incredible. You You have have to to keep telling the stories. Like we, you cannot deny what has, I mean, you can't deny, like, please stop denying mm-hmm. just no more gaslighting, no more erasure, um, no more skirting of the issue, skewing things, whether it's the way that this case is being handled for the murders of, of Asian women in Atlanta, you know, a week ago, or whether it's the way that the events in 1906 are remembered. It's just that, that to me, this is the power of history. And I so mm-hmm. appreciate we have people who want to learn about this with us and who don't want these histories to be hidden or muffled as much as, as we can, you know, unleash them. I think there's a lot of power in that. So thanks for listening. Yeah. Thanks for the story. And Atlanta, we are still thinking of you and everyone. Um, yeah, we got to do better trying to do better. That's right. Hang in there, everybody. Take care. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye.